Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in this series called Like Jesus, and uh, last week we talked about the importance of being a part of a community. One of the benefits of being a part of community is that you're tied into a group, and when you think about what the group can do, there's strength that comes from other people when we run out of strength, there's encouragement, and then there's the support that we need. Today, we're going to be looking at something a little bit different. It's not necessarily everybody's favorite thing, it just happens to be an important thing, which is why I showed the clip from Seinfeld. We need, we need to have the freedom to be able to speak into each other's lives so that we can identify what's going on in a person's life and that we can push them forward into godliness. This is also what, a part of what it means to be a part of a community or a part of a church. I was looking over the Proverbs this week. Some of you might know that's my favorite book in the Bible is Proverbs. And I found a number of things that were there and I'm gonna provide them for you. You feel free to take a picture of the screens. In Proverbs 12.1, it says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. <laughs> and when you think about if you're Solomon and you're trying to give wisdom to your son, which is what the book of Proverbs was actually all about, one of the things that he says is, is you need to be teachable. Now, that, that doesn't just mean that you need to be teachable. Uh, it means that we all need to be teachable. And if you're unwilling to receive a godly instruction, the result of that is, is you're going to be living in an ungodly ignorance. In Proverbs 15:5, it says, a fool spurns a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10, a rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a hundred lashes a fool. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20, listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. Ask you a question. In any of the Proverbs that I just read, did it say, until you reach a certain age? It did not. It did not. This is for, you see, the instruction of a parent to a child. You see that it could be the instruction of a person to a friend. You could be 40, you could be 60, you could be 148. It does not matter. You have people that are on the outside that are seeing the kinds of decisions that you are making, and hopefully, because of something that is of, of good, positive, godly motivation, they would be willing to speak some truth into your life so that what is going on in your life doesn't have a hold on you anymore. I don't know if you know this, but if you read the Bible, sometimes there was some static among the people there. Did you know that? Did you know that not everybody in the Bible agreed with each other? In Galatians chapter two, verses 11 and 13, there was this moment in the life of Peter and Paul. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, because Paul writes this letter, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Not the best moment in Peter's life, is that fair? Something that he was willing to do once before, but because of pressure among people in the church, Stunner. Peter was unwilling to sit down and have table fellowship with people over a doctrinal issue. It's important, but there's a certain way to act, right? And so what did Paul do? He says, I had to confront that brother to his face. Now I'm going to throw this out there. 
probably not a fun moment. Is that fair? Probably not a fun moment. I'm also gonna throw this out there, a very important moment, a very important one. You probably remember this story because it's really a famous one. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you have this guy named Nathan. One of the great examples of a person that was willing to say something incredibly difficult. You probably know the story. You know, David has committed his sin with Bathsheba. He is a hitman when you think about it because he sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out to the front has the troops withdraw, and he's basically there for the slaughter. And all of this came at the hands of David, his proclamation. And of course, you have this guy named Nathan, and Nathan visits David and tells him a story about a man who acted pretty wickedly. You know, and the response that David gets, because David's not sitting there thinking, well, this is about me. Uh, David says, well, what should happen to this man for what he's done? And his anger says, his anger was really aroused. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because that was what he took away in the story because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, yeah, you are the man. And then all of a sudden David's like, I mean, that death penalty thing, I mean, maybe not. See, Nathan was willing to look at a person that was in a position of power and authority you got to understand the pressure that he could be feeling in that moment because, well, David's already had one person killed and I think that David could probably have this guy killed, especially given his platform. And in spite of that, Nathan was willing to say something to him. He was willing to confront him. Again, it's not fun, it's just important. There's an author named Frank Viola. He has a, a work called How to Not Correct Another Christian. I think that's a great title. I wanna throw some how not to's out on the front before we talk about some things in scripture about why this is so important. But Frank Viola says this. He said, if you correct someone outside of grace, quoting Proverbs 18, 19, you will surely lose their friendship. Isn't that true? So why is it that we would actually be willing to step into the fray and correct someone? They can sniff it out when what you're up to is something other than for their good and restoration. And when that's your motive, when it's basically, I wanna see you get your comeuppance, then what Proverbs is telling you is, is yeah, you're probably gonna have a separated relationship there. People can literally see the difference as to why you're telling them what you're telling them. So a brother who's, who's been hurt in his spirit is harder to be won than a strong city. And, er, and arguing is like iron gates of a king's house. Second, sometimes Christians correct others when they shouldn't. Have you ever done that before? You stepped in and you offered a word when it wasn't your time to offer the word. Oftentimes, less serious, we let serious problems go unchecked without bringing needed correction, then that's a different problem altogether. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, it says, I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality among you, something that even pagans don't do, and I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Literally, there was a sexual relationship between this man and his stepmother, and nobody in the church was saying anything, and Paul was going, I can't believe that this is even what's going on, and I also can't believe that you guys are letting it go on. What this means is that Part of what it, what it looks like to be in a church is that you're gonna see healthy and godly correction in the church, healthy and godly correction. We need to ask this question, is it my place to correct this person? Or do I have a personal relationship with them or am I just being a busybody in another person's life? That's a fair question too, isn't it? In 1 Peter 4.15, it says, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's things, or some of them say affairs. 
Also not the way to go. And then last but not least, just because you see someone else's faults doesn't give you the right to point them out and correct them. It doesn't necessarily give you the right. And here's why. is because being a nitpicking fault finder is not what we're talking about here. In Jude 16, these people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. That's not what this is about either. Just the sheer enjoyment of calling somebody out is not what this is about. But this is why correction is so important. That's the how not to. But this is why correction is so important. And you see it in Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 20. It says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now what this doesn't mean is that if two or three of you get together and pray that each of you get a million dollars, it's going to be done in his name. You gotta remember that the context of this is that two or three are coming together to confirm an actual wrong has been done. There's been actual sin here. It's not just one person feels like there's sin there because shockingly, you might actually be wrong, but that you see others know that there is sin here. They use these phrases in Matthew 18, 18 through 20 of binding and loosing. Did you catch that? See, when you think of binding, you think of someone trying to take control over someone, literally like imprisoning them or tying them up. And so by the choices that you make, you are limiting its ability to function because you've tied it up. You put, you put binds around the, the hands, you put binds around the feet, and nobody's gonna be going anywhere. That kind of gives you a picture of what binding looks like. But also biblically, it also meant to expel people or to receive people from the congregation. You, you bind them, sometimes people have to go out. But it also meant to free them from being under the spell of someone. Like, you need to be thinking an evil spirit, or even under the power of death, or even the power of the grave. Binding and loosing. When you think of loosing, you think of kind of the opposite. We're setting something free, or you're freeing it up to make it what God wanted it to be. See, here's a little bit of background into this passage that I think will help it make sense. Just before this statement that Jesus made about binding and loosing, the disciples were in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is in Matthew chapter 16. And just so you know, this was a really evil place. You have Jesus and the disciples and they're kind of walking up to Caesarea Philippi, known for it being evil. And in Matthew 16, 19, Peter, who has confessed his faith in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And he's been told that he is the rock on which the church will be built, well, actually not him. He look, Jesus looks at him and he says, you're exactly right, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And you go, what is the rock? And the answer is, it's the gospel, that I am the Christ, and that everyone who claims that the church continues to get built. There's more and there's more and there's more. He goes, you get it right. And then Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he takes him up to this place that is absolutely evil. The city was originally called Panias. Maybe you've heard of it because it had the worship of Pan there. 
You can actually go there right now. And when you walk up, you'll see this big rock and you can walk right up to the rock. And they believed that Pan would go into this rock and would descend down into the depths. And the people who were up at the top were wondering where their God had gone. And so they would stand up at the top. They would offer sacrifices up there. There was water that was flowing out of it. They would throw their children into it. And then they committed un unbelievable sexual acts of debauchery. All of this was going on in this place. It was a cave. And to the pagan mind, the cave at Caesarea Philippi, it created a gate to the underworld where fertility gods took up residence during the, the winter. And that's when all of these things would take place. They were trying to draw their gods back out to them. They were trying to draw them back to them for their favor. The Romans called this place the rock of the gods. Jesus said, no, it's the gate of hell. It's the gate of hell. And so when Peter confesses Jesus and he says, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it, that's the place that he's talking about. That was the domain of death is what they believed. Death resides there. But here's what Jesus was saying. That's what's up there. But for what I've got, death can't hold it back. Death will have no power over it. Notice Jesus didn't say it's not gonna overpower me. He was going to die. It's just death wasn't gonna have a hold on him like death had a hold on them. So when Jesus talks about binding and loosing, he's talking about his church. He's talking about us. He says, I will build my church. So what binding and loosing is, it's an authority that Jesus gives to the church because the work of the church is to manifest the power of God and to break the stronghold of darkness. That is part of why we exist. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus goes on to say, after this, this line with, with Peter, he goes on to say, I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, just so you know, if you got keys, you got power, right? Have you ever been to a place and you can't open the door and then you try the keys and you don't have the right keys? Friends, you're not getting in. Or out, or out. Keys meant power. They have the power to let someone in. They have the power to shut somebody out. So the question was, what are we binding and loosing as Jesus was talking about? And the answer is, it's whatever's coming up out of hell. Whatever is coming up out of hell. We are exercising an authority over it so that it doesn't have a stronghold on people anymore. Binding is keeping that kind of evil from being active. Loosing is what happens when the forces of hell, they've already got you. You have a friend like that? Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend that is an addict? Do you have a friend that is just fit, prone to fits of rage? Do you have someone that is absolutely bound by lust? Because if you do, and it might even be you, then this is for you. This is for you. And this is why Peter's confession is so important. He says, you're the Christ. And when you make that confession, you then receive the keys. The door can be unlocked. You can push it open and you can walk out a free person. You receive the keys from him. Notice though, Jesus expects you to make a choice. He expects you to make a choice. He says, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, did you catch that from him? This is on you. But he gives a problem, a promise, it will be loosed in heaven. 
And now we get to how binding and loosing actually happens. If you look in verse 19, he says, I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it's gonna be done by the Father in heaven. For two or three gather in my name, I'm with you. I'm with you. In Deuteronomy 19, just so you know, you can't accuse somebody by the witness of one person. One don't work, you gotta have at least two or three. This is where Jesus is coming from. Two or three witnesses to confirm that there's actually an offense, that there's something going on here. And Jesus applies the two or three to binding and loosing. If you agree and you ask, that's prayer. You're asking for the rule, you're asking for the authority, you're asking for the power of Christ to intervene in these circumstances and to break people free from them. That's what you're asking for. In other words, acting on God's behalf to bring things about in the world that break the stronghold of evil. That's what you're there for. You see this story in Genesis 14, kind of one of those unfortunate stories. Don't you appreciate the honesty of the Bible? We see Abram make a difficult move. He has this nephew, a guy named Lot. They made the decision to move their tent. He made the decision to move his tents towards Sodom because as they were standing there together and they were gonna be parting ways, Abram says, which way do you wanna go? And Lot looks over toward Sodom and he sees that it's, it's green and it's lush and all of that. And he goes, I'll go that way. Well, that means Abram's going the other way and you kind of turn around and you look. And if you've ever been in the Middle East, you can see this, uh, there's not a lot there. <laughs> there's just not a lot there. And he's like, oh great, I get to go that way. This was this moment. So the, the choice sends, but the choice sends Lot on a downward spiral. And honestly, my friends, he never recovered from it. He never recovered from it. We find that Lot moves into the city in Genesis 14. The kings from the east, they wanted that area because it was an amazing trade route. They're like, we need to take this place over because then we can control commerce. If we control commerce, we control the money. This is amazing. So they defeated Sodom. The king flees, the king of Sodom flees. The people of Sodom and all of their stuff is taken captive. That includes Lot and his family. How's that green land looking for you now? All of them are taken captive. But there was an escapee, one that gets away, kind of like the Alamo, you know, one sneaks out. So he gets out and he goes to Abram, who stages a surprise attack. He takes a little over 300 and something of his guys. He says, we're about to go in. We're gonna get Lot. We're gonna get the, and we're going to get out of there. And they recovered everything that had been taken. They get Lot, they get his possessions back. And on return from the battle, Abram meets a guy named Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, as well as the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom, he encourages him. Hey, look, you got all this stuff. You went in, you and your men went in. Just keep it for yourself. Just keep it for yourself. And Abram, to his credit, it's not mine to keep. And it wasn't why we went in. See, what you see is Abram was willing to step in to intervene for his nephew Lot to free him from the circumstances he put himself in. Did you catch that? Now, Abram had good reasons not to go. I mean, after all, it's Lot's fault, right? I mean, he's the one that chose, right? He had good reason not to go. And he could have even been spiritual about it. Hey, you just, you reap what you sow. So, you know, that wasn't what he did. So why go after four powerful kings who had not bothered him at all? And especially when his life is looking all right. It's relatively peaceful. And it's because there were reasons to go. And the primary one is 
is he had a brother that was in bondage. He had a brother that was in bondage. Lot had been taken captive, as had his family. And when a believer is caught in sin, at least you look at Abram, what was his thought? We gotta do the work of getting them restored. And so he goes. You know what I'd love to tell you? I'd love to tell you that the story ends well for Lot, but the story doesn't end well. But I'm reminded of this from Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. What does it say there? Restore your brother. Do it gently. Restore means to put back together something that is broken. It's like the image of having an arm that is broken and you actually mend it. It's restored. He says brothers and sisters. So we know we're talking about, in Galatians, we know we're talking about the church. We're not talking about unbelievers. So when you go to church, one of the things that you should be finding there is brothers and sisters restoring brothers and sisters from brokenness. It should just be a part of what we are. Restoration is needed because people are stuck in sin and frankly, they don't know how to get out. They don't know how to get out. This is why Paul says that they are caught. The word caught there is the same language that you would put for a trap being dropped down and an animal walked into it and it's like, I am stuck. I'm stuck. But you've got a brother and a sister. You've got somebody that's gonna walk alongside you. Spiritually, this means that you need the right person to assist you. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person as this. So this is the question that I've got for you this morning. If this is what it means to be a part of a community that is a follower of Jesus, who have you given permission to to speak to you like that? Who have you given permission to to speak this kind of truth to you? Now, they need to be spiritual. Did you catch that? Paul said they've got to be spiritual, but this is one of the reasons that we come to church is so that we can get freed from our traps. And here's why. Why do we pick a spiritual person? And the answer is the spiritually mature are more qualified to see things than you are. And have you ever noticed this? Sometimes other people see you better than you see yourself. Have you ever noticed that? They're watching you. They're listening to you. They're praying for you. And they see you better than you see yourself. Because for whatever evil that is a part of your life, you have started to see it as good. But they don't. You need those people. And they need to have your permission to speak this kind of truth into your life so that you're not the animal that's caught in the trap. So you got to be careful about who you let diagnose you. But somebody's got to be doing some diagnosing. I mean, if you're terrible at math... You're not gonna to go to somebody who's worse at math and ask them to help you out. Or let me just say, I'm encouraging you not to. What'd you make on the test? 37, sounds like a perfect mentor to me. No, it really doesn't. They can't see the solution, but they're probably gonna offer you some advice. Is that fair? But they can't see the solution. So the question becomes, who are the spiritual people? Who are they? And this is where I think we can get something from Abram. Did you notice Lot goes to Sodom Abram goes the other way. Lot goes to Sodom and Abram goes the other way. And what this means is, is that you have to find somebody that is separate from the world, that is not caught in the trap. They're freed from it so that they can free you from it. I mean, after all, if Abram had lived in Sodom, he'd have had the same problem as Lot, wouldn't he? But he was separate. He was different. 
those are the people that you need in your life. They're wise in how they rescue a fallen friend. They're wise in the way that they rescue you. I mean, after all, Abram, he divided up his forces. He pulls, up a, he pulls off a surprise attack in the night. Good for him. But what this means is, is what he did, he acted on a principle. He acted on a principle, even though there was no guarantee of results. And in fact, if you look at Lot, what did he do? If you read the rest of the story, here's what you would love to hear. Abram and Delta Force, they sweep in, they free him, they pull him and all his stuff out, right? And they go, and Lot goes, my gosh, what a mess I have made of my life. Thank you for what you just did for me. If you read it though, Lot never has that moment. Never. In spite of everything that Abram had done for him, there had never been that moment. In fact, what do you see Lot do? You know what? I think I'm gonna go back to Sodom. And I bring this, I bring this up to make what I, I, I hope is a helpful point, is that Abram did everything right, and he did it out of principle, not knowing whether or not there was going to be a positive result. And I want you to understand this, is that if your motive is right, and you've got godly people around you, and they are speaking truth to you, so that evil won't have a hold on you anymore, we have the same possibility of responding just like Lot did. One is we could look at Abram and say, thank you for what you just did because I was a captive, but now I'm free. Or we could say, thank you for what you did, but I think I'm gonna go back to Sodom. The story is telling us the choice is ours. And Jesus has been saying, the choice is yours, it's yours. Do you wanna to continue to be bound or by the power of my name, the gospel that I give you, the good news I give you, are you ready to be free? The choice is yours. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.